The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Bruce Passfield of Austin and Bird on the U.S. Supreme Court's June 21, 2012 decision in Southern Union versus United States. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis legal podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. I'm Steve Burstler of LexisNexis. With me on this podcast is Bruce Passfield, partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Austin and Bird. Mr. Passfield has a national practice in environmental crimes defense after serving as one of the nation's top environmental prosecutors at the U.S. Department of Justice. Bruce defends a wide variety of clients in criminal enforcement actions in alleged violations of federal or state environmental laws, as well as other federal law violations. In addition to criminal enforcement defense work, Bruce represents companies in civil and administrative matters and provides companies with permit and compliance counseling on environment and energy issues in the U.S. and abroad. Bruce is currently chair for the Environmental Enforcement and Crimes Committee of the American Bar Association, as well as a member of the ABA Oil and Gas Committee. And Bruce, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to our LexisNexis Legal Podcasts. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, nice to be here and uh, nice to give another podcast. On June 21st, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Southern Union versus U.S. Can you give uh, listeners uh, a little background on how this case originated? Sure. You know, this is uh, the Southern Union cases. Somewhat typical of the cases we see across the country where you have an industrial facility that is not being used by a company for whatever reason, and uh, there are, there's waste product being stored on the property and uh, maybe not the, the, the housekeeping that uh, people would expect or would want. And that's exactly what we have here in the Southern Union case where Southern's a natural gas company that had acquired some local gas companies up in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And when you typically when you do make acquisitions you may end up with more property than you really need or want and here they in addition to everything else they wanted they acquired a 12 acre complex in Rhode Island and they weren't really using it that much but they did find some uses for it in storage of material and for automated monitoring and the uh, storage that took place was uh, unfortunately was a fairly hazardous substance uh, mercury it wasn't uh, the uh, just mercury pools of mercury sitting around per se uh, what they had tried to do was to set up a system of uh, removing mercury sealed gas regulators and replacing them with updated ones and that process began uh, about a year after they acquired the property and what they would do is take all the old mercury based regulators and store them at this at a warehouse uh, on this site and you know, as happens in sometimes in these situations, the storage outpaced the pace at which they were either disposing of the mercury or recycling it. And so these uh, regulators sat on site for almost four years. And during that time period, Southern struggled what to do with them. They actually put out a request for proposal to either have them disposed of or recycled. And unfortunately, none of those uh, requests for proposals were acted on, and the mercury continued to sit there. And uh, this facility didn't have complete security. They, in fact, removed a security guard that they'd had from it. And then uh, sometime in 2004, in September 2004, some youths broke into the facility and uh, unfortunately got into the mercury and started spreading it around, throwing it around a little bit, playing with it 
and I guess unknowingly bringing it back to their apartment complex where they contaminated places there. So that was a, it was, it was a big issue, and the company found out about it about three weeks later. So to roundabout to answer your question, once the company found out about it, they immediately called the contractor to start cleaning up the mercury and also notified the state DEP. So in the purest form, this was a self-reported violation, one where you know, the government may not have known about it until the company came forward and said, you know, we've got a problem. I think an interesting aspect of this case was that it was handled in a criminal forum rather than a civil forum. What are some of the factors that make a case criminal rather than civil? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I think when you look at the environmental crimes just in general, there are two main factors that the government looks at. You know, I was with the Department of Justice uh, in the environmental crime section for 15 years. And uh, back in 1994, I'd been there for I think about four years, EPA came up with a memo that uh, set forth factors. We referred to it as the Devaney memo. And the two main factors that they put forward were intent and harm. And so if you had a case where there was a large intent or people knew and willingly took action that violated the law, that would be looked at more likely for a criminal prosecution than not. The other factor is harm. Obviously, if you have a substance like mercury that's very toxic to people, that will have a factor too. So when you put those two factors together, you know, this case really on the harm factor, I think it falls very squarely. On the intent factor, I think what the government looked at, and again, I'm doing this in 2020 hindsight, but there were some safety meetings where the potential risk from having this mercury stored on site was discussed. There were requests for proposals to send it out. So clearly, Southern had some knowledge that they needed to handle this material appropriately. And um, while ultimately they did do that, it took this act of vandalism to have that come forward. So I think when the government looked at the corporate intent, if you will, and the harm that potentially could have occurred from the mercury contamination, it fit pretty squarely into the uh, criminal arena. So what was the issue Southern Union was facing once this case got to the Supreme Court level? Well, they were indicted and went to trial and convicted on one of the three counts at trial. And when the probation officer came up with the um, pre-sentencing report, they relied on the government's representation that there were 762 days of violation. And the way that works, uh, for those who are not familiar with uh, criminal cases, the government can charge a range of dates. It's not set to just charge one day of violation, although it could do that. So in this case, they said that they, the mercury was illegally stored on the site from September 19, 2002 until October 19, 2004, roughly 762 days. And in the criminal provisions of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, every day of violation is subject to a $50,000 penalty. So if you do the math, that came up to $38.1 million. Of course, uh, Southern Union was aghast by this because that's, uh, that's uh, probably one of the higher fines that you'd see imposed for a, a, a RICRA, or we call it RICRA, it's the Resource Conservation Recovery Act offense. Typically, you're looking at $50,000 for one violation. There is something called the Alternative Fines Act, which would bump the fine up to 500000 but Beyond that, that's probably what uh, Southern Union was expecting. So you might imagine when they got this pre-sentence report, they were very concerned. And ultimately, the judge went uh, below that $838 million, but did go to $18 million. 
and imposed that fine. Now, $12 million of that was for community service, but uh, nonetheless, it was a fine that went well above the expected fine range that Southern Union was looking at. So they appealed, they appealed that decision. And what did the Supreme Court ultimately find? Well, this is, a, this is an issue that's been floating around for quite some time. It goes back to, uh, I guess, the, the Apprendi decision in 2000 is the first place that this comes up, and it's, it's a Sixth Amendment issue. The Sixth Amendment's a pretty simple, one of the more straightforward amendments to the Constitution, and it basically says in all criminal prosecutions, the, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. There are, there are other provisions about that, but that's the, the main focus of this appeal. And what the Supreme Court has said is that, look, the Constitution says jury. It doesn't say judge. It says you have a right to a trial by a jury. And if we're going to sentence people to offenses and we're going to enhance their sentence above some statutory maximum, the judge, we're going to give the judge that authority, we don't think that's consistent with the, the underlying constitutional right because it's the jury, not the judge, that gets to make this determination. So in Apprendi, the situation was where um, an individual had been convicted of an offense, and then the judge attempted to categorize the offense as a hate crime and go above the statutory maximum and made a finding that a hate crime had occurred and increased the sentence. And in that case, the defendant argued well, look, it was fine to sentence me to up to the statutory maximum, but if you're going to go above that, it's really the jury's decision about this hate crime. And the jury didn't pass on that. The jury verdict didn't have a provision that said this hate crime occurred, and so they never made that decision. And so the Supreme Court in that case said, yes, the judge had exceeded his authority by going over the statutory maximum. Now, that was in the context of somebody going to jail. So since Apprendi, there has been a lot of case law at the lower levels about whether that, the extent to which this is going to apply to sentencing factors. For example, restitution is typically applied at sentencing. So the argument was made and has been made a number of times by defendants, look, the jury didn't decide on what amount of restitution should be imposed, so the court can't impose it. It's got to go back to a jury trial for them to decide the restitution amount. And the courts then started looking at common law for whether or not a traditional jury would be making a decision about restitution, uh, whether they would be making decisions about, about other aspects of a sentencing. And ultimately, that case law has filtered up to the Supreme Court several times. And the restitution issue, uh, just for those who are interested, the courts found a common law that wasn't typically something a jury would decide. So restitution would not be something that would have to be decided by a jury. It could be decided by a judge. In this case, the issue is the criminal fine. Is that something that traditionally would have been decided by a jury? And the courts, uh, it was a pretty interesting argument because they went way back into the common law of England and in the United States to try and figure out if that had been a traditional jury determination. And ultimately, the opinion by the Supreme Court, by Justice Sotomayor, said yes, um, juries had traditionally determined whether or not uh, what, what type of fine to be imposed or the extent of a fine. So in this case, we are going to reverse the district court and the appellate court and send it back for determination by a jury that the fine was appropriate. And just to, to round that out, the, the specific issue in Southern Union is the per day of violation. The jury in that case in the Southern Union only made a finding that an offense occurred, one violation of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. 
and that would entitle the government to seek one per day violation or $50,000 fine. Right. So how then is this going to affect how fines are going to be imposed in environmental criminal cases? And that's that's really the crux of this decision now. Um, I think what you're going to see is, is two things. One is that the government is now going to have to have special verdict forms, especially when they have a date range that they charge. And the government does that pretty typically in two situations. One, I would say the Southern Union case represents one type of case where there's a date range, and that's where you have a storage that starts at one point and ends at another point, or a disposal that starts at one point and ends at another point, and there's evidence that uh, establishes that over the entire range. And so they will have to either break that down by uh, month, charging by the month, or having a verdict form that says, you know, we find that the violation occurred over so many days. So they're going to have to have the jury decide these things more specifically in order to be able to seek the more serious fine. And I think that, you know, bodes well for corporations because it's going to really make the government be more precise, which is, you know, I think from a due due process standpoint is a good thing. No longer can the government just say, you know what, we, we know this happened sometime within this 762 days in the Southern Union opinion, and uh, we're not sure which dates, but we know it's somewhere in there. Now they're going to have to be pretty exacting and say, okay, here are the dates where it happened, and here are the dates we're going to try and impose a penalty on you for. Let me ask you about sentencing guidelines for, for a moment. Do they apply sentencing guidelines for environmental crimes differently for individuals and corporations? Yes, they do. It's, uh, it's one of the few situations where corporations and individuals are treated really significantly different. There is a very regimented guideline sentencing for individuals and usually results in, in fairly harsh penalties. Believe it or not, environmental crimes, if you're committing kind of the standard Clean Water Act offense, um, you're looking at going to jail. And the same thing for Resource Conservation and Recovery Act offenses. The heartland of those cases result in significant jail sentences. Whereas with corporations, there is no regiment to the, to the guidelines. In fact, they have a specific carve-out in the guidelines for environmental crimes. So really, when a prosecutor has a corporation that is under indictment and he's trying to make a decision about what the appropriate fine should be, the only guidance he's got are some general sentencing provisions and the statutory maximum and the Alternative Fines Act. So there's a lot more discretion when it comes to a corporate uh, defendant and the, the penalty, specifically as respect to a fine, than, than with individuals. Speaking of the Alternative Fines Act, how was that act exercised prior to the Supreme Court's ruling? And now, what about after this ruling? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, because I think Justice Sotomayor wrote the opinion and in, in uh, Southern Union, and the basic decision in Southern Union addressed this per day of violation issue. But in dicta, and I think probably in more than just dicta, she said that the same thing, the same considerations would apply to the Alternative Fines Act. And just a little background on the Alternative Fines Act. If you are convicted of a criminal offense, unless that offense specifically exempts the Alternative Fines Act, it applies. And now under that 
provision. It's a, uh, what I would call a specific sentencing provision. A corporation can be fined $500,000 for each violation or up to twice the gain or loss as a result of the offense. And that has been this gain or loss provision has so far been the primary means by which the government really seeks to elevate somebody's sentence. And, you know, the Exxon Valdez case would probably be the best example where they were able to collect a fine of close to a billion dollars because of the, the loss that occurred up in Prince William Sound. Typically, those are very difficult decisions to reach, how much the loss actually was. It's a complicated process. And if that now has to become subject to a jury determination, it's, it's going to make that loss calculation or gain calculation the government's going to have to be much more exacting about providing evidence on that. So I think, again, here, uh, what we'll see, we'll start to see is that the government is going to be, have to be more precise in how it pleads its case and ultimately how it proves its case. And uh, I think that's a good from a due process standpoint because it's, it's going to force them to really look at the facts and not just um, you know, throw the spaghetti up on the refrigerator and see if it sticks. Right. <laughs> Do you think this opinion is going to have any impact on civil fines? Well, it's, it's interesting the way this has developed because the civil fines, they have very traditionally used the per day violation provision to really use that as the hammer for getting a company to agree to a civil settlement. So the Southern Union case would be a perfect example. If Southern Union was only looking at a $50,000 fine for one day of violation, you know, in the civil context, you know, that, that might be one thing. If they're looking at a $38.1 million fine, because, uh, again, assuming this was a civil case, 762 days, then they might take a completely different stance. So in the civil arena, you've, you know, we've already seen this uh, per day of violation being used as a hammer. And that has kind of morphed over into the criminal arena, except I think now the Southern Union decision is going to pull that back a bit because of the due process considerations that are present in criminal cases. In civil cases, you don't have the same, same thing. There's no uh, right to a jury trial. And so uh, the, the due process and Sixth Amendment guarantees really don't come into play in that. So I don't think that this case is going to have an impact on civil enforcement per se. But it, I think more what it, what it, it does is it says, look, uh, EPA, you can't use that per day of violation as a hammer in the civil context, the same way you, you, you might try to do that in a criminal. You're, you're going to have to be more exacting if you're going to try and extract a per day violation in the criminal context. Are there uh, any other legal issues that uh, practicing environmental law attorneys might be mindful of in light of the court's Southern Union decision? Yeah, I think one thing that I've picked up on this that I think was going to be pretty interesting down the road is reflected in a pleading United States versus fleet management. This was a case um, out of the uh, Northern District of California. And uh, it was a situation where the government sought to supersede an indictment, specifically to add a provision on the loss, because this was a, an oil spill case, and they had not made that specific pleading. And, and they ultimately came back around and, and did seek a superseding indictment that allowed that included language that would allow them to seek damages for loss and the challenge to that was the crimes being alleged in that case were strict liability and simple negligence crimes and so when i look at 
uh, Justice Sotomayor's opinion, where she comes down on this and where the Supreme Court comes down on this is, look, if you have a significant enough case that a fine is going to be in the millions of dollars, then the right to jury trial attaches. If you've got a case where it's a petty offense, the right to a jury trial doesn't attach. And so for petty offenses, we're not going to worry about the fine. You know, that doesn't have to be decided upon by a jury. So where this comes into play is when at the very, I guess, bottom of criminal liability on strict liability and and negligence, are those going to be treated as uh, offenses that are uh, above petty offenses that where the jury right to a jury trial attaches and where all that will have to go to a jury? Or do we want to put that in a category of offenses that are lower than what would be required for um, a jury trial? If so, if you're below that threshold and you're try- and the government's trying to seek a penalty of $40 million, say, then you look at the Eighth Amendment, which is the you know, cruel and unusual punishment amendment, for lack of a better term, where your, your offense of conviction should be consistent with you know, the punishment that's being sought. So I think that's where if there, there's going to be some challenges to come up. It's going to be at this low end where the government tries to get around this requirement of having a jury decide on a fine amount by bringing a lower volume or a petty offense, but then tries to seek a very high fine for the petty offense that occurred. So what happens now? To wrap up, what impact do you think this case really is going to have, say, in the next two, three, five years? Well, what I would say is that I think what what's happened now is this Apprendi decision from 2000 really set the bar for what the government would have to prove beyond just the the main count of conviction. If you're going to try and enhance a sentence, you're going to have to present other facts to a jury. And since then, since uh, 2000, there has been a lot of back and forth about the extent to which this concept of additional facts that juries must prove, how far they're going to go with that. And I mentioned the restitution issue before, where that doesn't have to go to a, to a jury. And so what I see right now is that this is, this is played out pretty well. We now know that criminal fines are subject to the Apprendi decision and must be put before a jury. And the district courts and some circuit courts have ruled on other aspects of sentencing so that the nuances of this, so to speak, have pretty well been established. So I think you'll see a, you know, a, maybe a little bit more uniformity that's going to come out of this now as the government understands, okay, if we're going to try and prove a Alternative Fines Act case, we're going to have to allege the loss in our indictment so that it's something that the jury proves. So I think that's more of what you're going to see. There's going to be more more precision to the government's pleadings, and ultimately, I, I think that's you know good for the just the justice system. Bruce, we're just about out of time. I, I want to thank you for your time. Appreciate your being with us on this Lexus Nexus Legal Podcast. Appreciate your thoughts on this case and your views on its impact. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate the opportunity. Bruce Passfield, partner in Austin and Bird's Washington D.C. office. Thanks for listening to this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities. Like the communities on Facebook. Follow them on Twitter. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Copyright 2012 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. All rights reserved.